0: Well, good evening, everyone. I hope everybody's doing well in spite of some of the challenges that some are facing. Certainly it is a time where we're facing challenges from without, from within. They encompass us roundabout. We're wearied, many of us. We are battle hardened, some of us, not necessarily to our liking, but that is the pace of the world, that is the agenda of the world. Unfortunately, those challenges slip in ecclesially but still we stand it is of no coincidence that god gave the charge to joshua said be ye courageous because brothers and sisters i do not have to tell you and certainly i do not have to tell the older that have been before me that it takes courage to continue to stand here i will be different i will not go down and as for me and my house we will serve the lord so what I want to speak about, and much to my surprise, you'll be hearing some of the same words from Brother Aaron Thomas tomorrow night. But as somebody told me, uh, by 10 o'clock tomorrow night, you'll probably get it. That's certainly not for all of you. So I hope to complement what is to come. Uh, I think it's a ve- excuse me. I think it's a very important topic. And in the end, this is the basis for our hope as Gentiles. To have such a marvelous privilege to be exposed, to have this conduit, to have this opportunity to be grafted in to this set of promises, to this land, to this airship, to this entitlement, and to this kingdom is hard to really speak of. The purpose of this evening's words is to dive deeper into understanding a mystery given to the Apostle Paul. Paul was given by God the keys to this mystery, which was not revealed to men of old. Paul was given uh, specifically this enigma. It was made known to him and believers of today, and it's critical to understand because it is our only bridge to the hope of Israel and to the covenants of promise made to Abraham and Christ. So I hope to bring clarity to this issue as we decipher Ishmael, as we look at Jacob, as we look at Israel. Christ, and the adoption process of the Gentiles. It is fundamental. It's elementary, as it would say uh, in Hebrews chapter 5. But these are important principles for us to grasp. We'll look at the natural seed versus the spiritual seed. and the allegory of Galatians 4, the arguments of Paul in Romans 9 and chapter 10, augmented by the place of the Abrahamic covenant by Brother Ted Fair, Elpis Israel, as you can see behind me, by Dr. Thomas. Also a series of logos articles from 1966. And finally, an 1843 article by Dr. Thomas, reprinted uh, back in the Advocate in 99. So let's start our journey. Our first area of focus begins with the five seeds of Abraham. In the Bible, the word seed carries the idea of children or descendants proceeding from a progenitor. The Hebrew word is zera, and this means posterity, means progeny or offspring. The Greek word is sperma, which has almost the same meaning as its Hebrew equivalent. It's important to remember that the English word seed can either be singular or plural, depending upon its context, just as sheep, deer, and elk. Whether one is referring to one descendant or a multitude of descendants, the same word is used, that word being seed. Therefore, we have to look to context to determine its meaning. Since the beneficiaries under the terms of the covenant are called the seed of Abraham, it should be noted that the word seed is used in five different senses with respect to the progeny of Abraham. When we look at this laid out, the word seed is synonymous with the words progeny, descendant, offspring, and posterity, as we mentioned Any persons who have Abraham as their ancestor can properly be called the seed of Abraham. Again, this use of the word seed can be singular or it can be plural. And remember, context is the key. Abraham had at least three wives that are given to us. Sarah, who uh, had Isaac, of course. Hagar, Ishmael, Keturah. And born to them were at least six sons who are identified in Genesis 25 too. We have Zimran. Joxton, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So all of these descendants that you see on the screen behind me can rightly be called the seed of Abraham because they proceeded from his loins. All of these in turn had progeny or offspring, which as the generations descended amounted to millions of people. So we see quite a population coming from. But as we get further into this, and it's familiar to all of us, there is only a certain lineage that carries the promise. The firstborn child to Abraham was Ishmael. We see that affirmed in Genesis sixteen eleven. His mother was not an Israelite. She was an Egyptian. Later, we know that Esau married the daughters of Ishmael. And as time went on, the progeny of Esau and Ishmael intermingled, and today they constitute what is the Arab nations that surround modern-day Israel. Since Abraham was their father or progenitor, in a natural sense, they can be called, and are appropriately called, the seed of Abraham. Abraham's sons, through Keturah, also intermarried with the descendants of Ishmael and constitute a lineage of the Arab peoples today. Seed number two, although you're looking at seed number one. We'll catch up in a moment. This is Isaac through Sarah. Sarah. As we know, Abraham was about 100 years old, Sarah, 90. Since both were beyond the age of natural conception, Isaac is the result of God's miraculous intervention. You can't say it otherwise. And hence he is styled by the Apostle Paul as a child of promise. With Isaac, we're now introduced to the biblical concept, which is introduced by Brother Ted Fair, of exclusiveness. You see, divine election is not inclusive meaning not anybody on any terms can join it. It is a very specific entry point and a very specific conduit and terms to be a participant of it. It doesn't discriminate on age and sex and those types of things, but it discriminates on a basis of truth, covenant, and the promises therein. And yes, the Almighty does discriminate in that respect. So... Uh, Brother Fair quotes this, Just as in a will or a testament, the testator may exclude certain of his children for one reason or another, so in the covenant with Abraham, this principle of of exclusiveness became operative. Via God's divine plan and purpose, we have the seeds of Keturah and Hagar. They were specifically excluded from heirship or inheritance. In other words, they were disinherited. They were deprived from coming into certain possession of certain rights, which would, would have been the right of the firstborn, which would normally fall upon them as a result of descent, In a natural order of things, they were owed this, or he was owed this because of his firstborn status. This is prophetically spoken of in the words of Sarah after she observed Ishmael mocking Isaac on the festival uh, festival of his weaning. Sarah said to Abraham, quote, "'Cast out this bondwoman and her son,' For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even Isaac, in Genesis 21.10. Now this pronouncement was very grievous to Abraham. And this is typed after the flesh. After the flesh it would be a very grievous thing as a father to disinherit your firstborn son. But God does not operate by the principles of the flesh. God confirmed the dictum of Sarah. And quote, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This pronouncement ensured that Ishmael and his progeny would be excluded as beneficiaries and heirs of the covenant of God made with Abraham. A true son of, de- of deity is not produced by the flesh, but by the spirit word. Let's look at John 3, 3 through 6. Familiar verses, but they go as such. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we have a key principle or a criterion that is being put forth here. Just because you have natural fleshly descent does not necessarily make you eligible to inherit the kingdom. Something has to take place. Isaac allegorically was this son born by the word of God. Miraculous birth, divine intervention enabled Isaac to be born. The only descendants that were qualified for heirship were in the line of Isaac and Jacob. The lines of Ishmael and Esau were excluded. We see the covenants later confirmed to Isaac and later to Jacob, as we read in Genesis 26:3 through 5, and also Genesis 28:13 through 14, respectively. One lineage, one progeny, one seed. The rest are excluded. Why is this discriminatory policy happening? Let's turn to Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 7 through 8, says this. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And also 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now the Almighty will explain this principle through Scripture but at first we see one thing that you can't take away. This is how the Almighty has set this forth. It's that the promise and that lineage will go through Isaac, not Ishmael. Seed number three. When Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel in Genesis 32:28, the descendants of Jacob were henceforth or henceforward called the children of Israel or Israelites. Remember, prior to this, Abram was designated a Jew or a Hebrew by God. Otherwise, what was Abraham's ethnicity prior to this designation? What's the ethnicity of Noah? What's the ethnicity of Adam? What's their race? Enoch. There is is not a designation for those faithful men of old. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness, correct? Enoch walked with God. The commandments were in the earth, but there was not a Jewish people identified. What was Terah's ethnicity? Chaldean? Semitic? For this point, that doesn't matter. They are the children of God, the Israel of God by faith. The descendants of Israel and Jacob were later referred to as Israelites and later still as Jews. Does this mean that the whole nation of Israel were to become heirs of the Abrahamic covenant? By no means. The reason for this is another divine principle of exclusiveness, which was operatively named, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed, Romans 9.8. So the point here is critical, because I don't want you to get distracted. The word counted is rendered reckoned, treated, or deemed. What Paul is saying, and how fitting for Paul to say it, or to present this argument, from the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite after the flesh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, and as we think as a side note, who else was from the tribe of uh, Benjamin? King Saul, the first mortal king of Israel. That's another interesting type to compare Saul and his lineage to David. But back to our point. What Paul is saying is that out of the multitudinous nation of Israel, or Jews, only those who were the children of promise, that is, those who had faith in the covenant, were deemed, reckoned, and counted as the true seed of Abraham. In other words, just because a person is a descendant of Jacob by the accident of birth does not automatically entitle him or her to heirship under the terms of the covenant. As Paul argues in Romans 9, 6-7, he says this, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And so what does Paul mean by that phrase, they are not all Israel? Well, frequently in the Bible, the term Israel has a spiritual connotation. It is an equivalent expression for God's elect, the saints or the redeemed. In Jesus' words, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael was being spoken of for this particular event a true Israelite of faith, grasping the Abrahamic covenant and identifying Jesus as as the Messiah. In John one forty-seven, Paul refers to the saints in the Galatian ecclesias as, quote, the Israel of God, in Galatians 6.16. These were Galatians that were referred to as that. Frequently in the Psalms, the word Israel is used to describe the true children of God by faith. In contradistinction, Distinction to the natural descendants of the patriarchs who are styled Jacob. Let's read a few verses to establish what's being put forth here. Psalms 14, verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Let's look at Psalms 105. through which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee I will give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. And also Psalms 135, verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel, for his peculiar treasure. Interesting, the use of the two words, Jacob and Israel. A very interesting verse relays a principle that continues to build upon what's being put forth. And it applies to the future grafting in of the Gentiles. We see that here in Proverbs 17, verse 2. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causeth shame and shall have inheritance among the brethren. As Isaac displaced Ishmael, so faithful Gentiles displace fleshly-minded Jews and assume the title of the Israel of God, as it says in Galatians 6.16. The title of spiritual Jews. Let's look at Romans 2.29. he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And also the seed of promise, chapter 4, verse 12. And the father of circumcision to them, who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet un uncircumcised. And verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, Brother Fair explains this concept by turning the sentence of Paul's from front or from back to front. He says the expression of Israel is tantamount to the expression, the natural descendants of Jacob. So in in short, the Jewish people are the nation of Israel. What Paul is arguing is this. Just because a person is a Jew, a natural descendant of Jacob, does not qualify him for the designation of a true Israelite, that is, a saint in the eyes of the Almighty. It has been reasoned incorrectly that natural Israel couldn't have grasped Christ through the law. But if we look at Romans 10, 14 through 21, we put such error to rest. Because one just has to consider just for a moment, how was the law given to the children of Israel? Divine inspiration via the Elohim to Moses directly to the people. What were the priests supposed to be doing daily? They didn't just perform sacrifices and then take a break until noon and take a break until evening. Let's before we look at our Romans verse quickly turn over to Malachi, and you'll see the Levi priest chastised for not teaching the word of God. And that is exactly what one of their primary charges was. When someone could come in and ask, What does this mean? What do the layers on this tabernacle represent? The priests knew that and they were to speak that. What does this symbolize? What am I supposed to be thinking of when this animal is being offered? That transfer of knowledge and truth was to be happening. It was an expectation, and God gave the priests through the Elohim to Moses that ability. So then they were accountable. If you look at Malachi 2, 7-8. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. So with this as the source of truth and knowledge about God's law, what these things meant, what you were doing, the reason for it doing, instead of just an ignorant priesthood saying, all I know is if you don't do it, you die. That's, a, that's an ignorant, very shallow approach. The children of Israel were under divine instruction. So when they chose not to follow it, it was not out of ignorance. It was a will of the flesh. This is not for me. I want to go back to Egypt. I do not believe these things. And then worse... When the priesthood or the leadership felt the same way, then uh, everything fell apart very quickly. Paul's final summation is, quote, The children of the promise are counted for the seed. While all naturally born Jews are the fleshly descendants of the patriarchs, the only ones of this multitude that are deemed or reckoned to be qualifiers for the inheritance nominated in the covenant are those who are called the children of promise. That is, those who have faith in the promises as exhibited by the faith of Abraham and who walk in his steps. And a key component of the faith of Abraham is the singular seed, which is Christ. This person, Jesus Christ, is whom, or is who Abraham rejoiced to see and will eventually see. So we look at seed number four. We think back that the word seed, it can be singular or plural, depending upon the context. And the context is key uh, in in discovering what it is. When the covenant was extended to Abraham and recorded in Genesis 17, the context demands that the word seed be construed in a plural sense. And it says this, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations. The usage of the word there in conjunction with the word seed indicates a plurality of descendants. And a similar usage is found in Genesis 17, 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. If this is the case, then why did the Apostle Paul make such a point in Galatians 3, 16 that the promised seed was in the singular and was in fact one person? Jesus Christ. Let's look at that. Galatians 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. There is no ambiguity there. There is no vagueness. There is no inference. It is explicit. That seed is Christ. So the entirety of Paul's argument here affirms that Christ is the singular seed of Abraham and that through him, that being Christ, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. This concept is totally lost in the RSV and the NIV translations. In both these versions, the translation of Genesis 22:17 is set forth not as a singular seed but as a multitudinous seed. This error nullifies the argument of Paul in Galatians 3:16. And under divine inspiration, Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the singular seed referred to in Genesis thirteen fifteen, which says, quote, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now, the land, the land which Abraham saw in all four directions is pr- present-day Israel, though not fully occupied. It was promised to Abraham, the children of promise, to his greater son, Jesus Christ, and by extension to the heirs of the covenant by adoption, namely baptized believers who have come under covenant through that means. So Paul further emphasizes his point in Galatians 3.19, which reads as such, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come, to whom... The promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So, when we go to the next aspect here, we see this. As I just read, Wherefore serveth the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So, it's important to note the Apostle Paul does not say about whom the promise was made, he's very specific that the covenant was made to Jesus Christ personally in its primary application, and that he has also promised the land of Israel along with the spiritual seed of Abraham. It is Jesus who is going to possess the gate of his enemies, and it is through Christ that, quote, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, as it says in Genesis 22, 17 through 18. Now, the scriptures place special emphasis on the connection between Jesus Christ and this everlasting covenant. Not only is he described as the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1, but he is described as a covenant in Isaiah 42.6. Let's just read that for a moment. Isaiah two six. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles. So, continuing. In addition to the covenant conferring eternal benefits... Personally, upon both Abraham and his seed Christ, provision was made for the true seed of Abraham to join in the covenant and become beneficiaries to its terms, which are called the promises. This is set forth in Genesis 17, verse 7. I'd like to read it briefly. It reads as such And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations. For an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. We know that men like Moses, Samuel, and Daniel did join in the Abrahamic covenant. We also know that people like Rahab and Ruth, not Jews, joined into the Abrahamic covenant by faith and walking in the steps like that of Abraham. These men were all natural Jews and women, descendants in the line of Isaac and Jacob, They will be recipients of the blessing of the covenant, which includes a resurrection from the dead and internal inheritance in the Holy Land. This implies forgiveness of sins through the redemptive work of the singular seed, which is Christ. These are Israelites indeed. So herein is the great question, or this mystery that I opened with, the enigma as we began this evening. How can a Gentile who was not descended from Abraham by natural birth, ever become a recipient of the promises exclusively given to Jews. Paul devotes a part of the book of Ephesians to explain this solution. As we turn to Ephesians, we can begin to read this solution, or this provision which is better said. Ephesians 3, 2 through 8. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other er ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and have the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Wherefore, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This mystery is granted to Paul by divine revelation, which we see in verse 3. It's not by chance, it's not conjecture, it's not his own reasoning, it's not his own arguments. It's It's given to him by divine inspiration. The mystery was not made known to the sons of men in former ages, but this mystery has been revealed to the apostles whom Paul was the chief. And it is outlaid as such. It basically says that Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. As we look at each point a little bit more closely, we get a better understanding of its significance. The Gentiles, the mystery in essence concerns how the Gentiles can join in the Abrahamic covenant and become heirs to its promises. Two, fellow heirs. An heir is one who is entitled to inherit and the rightful recipient of the blessings and property set forth in the covenant. Heirs are only eligible. The terms of the covenant specify that heirs and only heirs qualify. The key point to note here is the word fellow, which clearly implies that there are two groups in order for Gentiles to be fellow heirs with another group, namely those faithful of the natural seed of Abraham Israelites indeed and the children of promise the second group is the group identified here by Paul which are the Gentiles they too qualify as heirs in the appointed way by faith via the process of adoption and we'll look at this in a moment point three and of the same body the community of believers called the body of Christ consists of Abraham's seed which are faithful Jews and Gentiles By baptism into Christ, Gentiles become Abraham's seed by adoption and thus become heirs of the covenant and members of the body of Christ to be partakers of his promise. Gentiles by divine provision can now be partakers, co-participants with the Jews and heirs of the promise. Here the word promise is a synonym for covenant because God cannot break his covenant it becomes elevated to the status of a promise. Point five, in Christ. The only means, the only route by which a Gentile can become an heir of the covenant is in and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified and brought into force by the sacrificial blood of Christ. Prior to that, Gentiles were strangers from the covenants of promise. As we read in Ephesians 2, aliens, and also Romans 6.3, dead in sins, and without hope. And point six, by the gospel. In order for baptism into Christ to be valid, it has to be preceded by the belief in the gospel, that is, the belief in the things concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. I know that will be talked about in one of the classes this week, but those are the two pillars that hold up this concept of gospel. You cannot have the one without the other you cannot preach only one and be preaching the gospel. And if you look at the words of Christ, he consistently preached about things concerning the kingdom in his name. The gospel is the power of God into salvation, which it says in Romans 1.16. So now we're looking into adoption, which we've just introduced. There are two types of children when it comes to adoption. Natural-born and children born of other parents who are adopted into another family. Both types of children enjoy certain rights and privileges. One, both are entitled to the family name. Both are ranked as heirs at law. Both are ranked as legitimate and legal members of the family and are subject to the entitlements pertaining thereto. The adopted child is thus legally constituted, and from the point of adoption forward, The entitlements, including heirship, are governed by the forces of law. Usually a child is adopted in infancy and has no say about it. It is interesting, and Brother Fair brings this out, that adoption can take place at any age. And this is more appropriate for our situation because we make a willing, conscious choice at our baptismal examination to be participants into this family via this adoption, this divinely provided adoption process. Augustus Caesar was nearly 20 when Julian Caesar adopted him. At this age, Augustus could have refused the adoption if he desired. And so, just as we can refuse our adoption into Christ. But once one is legally adopted, the process is irrevocable. You cannot adopt a child and then unadopt him later. So when a man man is baptized into Christ, he is the subject of a legal adoption and is therefore entitled to the inheritance inheritance promised in the covenant. Let's look at Romans 8. Verses 14 through 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And we can also look quickly at Galatians four, four through seven. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's only one begotten son of God, and that is Jesus The rest of us come under what is called an adoptive process, but Jesus was begotten. That is a key and fundamental difference, and that is key to his rank and his entitlement and his inheritance. So all others, including ourselves, it's hard to contemplate this privilege to become adopted sons and daughters of God through this process. So now conclusion. I know it's hot. I know it's stuffy. We're coming down the final leg. And so now we look at these scriptures from a global perspective. God's purpose according to selection. Isaac and Ishmael, children of promise versus the children after the flesh. In the case of Jacob and Esau, we see this principle demonstrated in Romans 9:11. The faith of God and thus his original purpose is not of works. Or man achieving his own salvation, his own ability, which was the fallacy, the fallacy of the law, but it is, quote, of him that calleth, the righteousness which is of faith. And we can't escape this without reinforcing this point by looking again at Romans 9:32. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It is why to this day, as it said in Second Corinthians, for that particular verse, it says that the Jews still read the law with a veil over their face. We understand what was the veil symbolic of. They could not see past that to see Christ. It became a stumbling stone. They should have seen him in terms of the law. They should have seen him in the symbolism. They should have seen him in the sacrifice. That understanding ascended you to the Abrahamic covenant. If you remained in the hope of the law, the works of my flesh, which is a fallacy, because if you broke the law in one aspect, you were guilty of all of it, so how quickly that should have registered in the minds. This cannot be washed away as they just didn't understand. It was a choice. And the same circumstances are for us. We cannot just merely go through the motions, think that our association, think that our attendance will get us into the Abrahamic covenant, which only then would make us eligible for salvation. It is a constant choice to walk in the steps of Abraham. In the allegory of Galatians 4, we understand Hagar is the bondwoman. <coughs> Sorry. Ishmael is the son of the bondwoman. They are linked to Mount Sinai, where the law was given. They are also linked to Jerusalem, which now is. Hagar is referred to as the Egyptian, and how appropriate for the natural seed of Abraham came up as a son out of Egypt, as we see in Exodus 4, 22-23. So Hagar and Ishmael are allegorically, if you understand allegory, and I would encourage you to read Galatians 4, they're compared to Sarah and Isaac, this pairing and this comparison. Hagar and Ishmael compared to Sarah and Isaac. Sarah and Isaac, and Sarah specifically, is called the free woman, and they are linked to Jerusalem, which is to come, Jerusalem which is from above, and the mother of us all. Hagar and Ishmael represent the law, While Sarah and Isaac represent the new covenant and the faith in Jesus Christ. So here truly we have, in an allegorical opposition, we have natural Israel and spiritual Israel. We have children of promise and we have children at the flesh. And we see how that promise and who is counted for seed play out in that allegory. The main facets of the allegory are plain and they can't be mistaken. It's not mysterious, it's not vague. Paul clearly identifies and defines each aspect, but there is a further allegorical component that directly relates to Hagar and Ishmael. Remember, Hagar was cast out twice by Abraham, Abraham being representative of Yahweh in this particular instance. In the case of offering up Isaac, he is also representative here, uh, just as Yahweh cast out Israel in two separate times or two separate occasions. The first casting out was by the hand of the Assyrians, the Babylonians. The second by the Roman armies. You can see that affirmed in Isaiah 39 and respectively Luke 21. When Abraham cast out Hagar, the second and final time, it is significant because Israel after the flesh was sent away by Yahweh, as we read in Jeremiah 3. Hagar departs with the child with bread and water that she carries in a bottle, as we reflect upon the story. Bread and water are used as a symbol of God's word. We can see this affirmed in Ephesians 5 and Matthew 4. But here, Hagar has only a temporary supply. Earlier, if you recall, in Galatians 4, Paul identifies Hagar with the law of Moses, given from Mount Sinai. The law was only transient in nature and could not bring life. It was a temporary supply in order to bring them to the new covenant Hagar now in this allegory is a powerful illustration of that fact. The temporary supply of bread and water given to her by Abraham, the law given by Yahweh, could not sustain natural Israel indefinitely. It could not preserve their life. Ironically, Hagar was lost in the wilderness of Beersheba, the very place where Abraham had dug a number of wells, and I believe it's seven wells of water. We see that affirmed in Genesis 21 and also in 26. But the key point is, she couldn't find it. There was water all around. She was lost in this wilderness. Abraham had dug wells. There was life giving water there, but she couldn't find it. It is the same significance as we read in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Who will go to the heavens to bring it back? Who will go to the depths of the sea? Who will go to the east? Who will go to the west? Well, it is right there in front of you. What that means is this everlasting covenant, its linkage to Christ, was in the law. It was right there in front of them, and they could not see it. As it said in Romans, they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As we continue in verse 19 of uh, Genesis 21, it states, quote, God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle of water and gave the lad to drink. Israel's blindness, and she is under partial blindness today, which allows for the provision of the opportunity for the Gentiles to come in. Israel's blindness to the true significance of the Abrahamic covenant, that is their inability to identify the true well, Christ, will almost result in the death of the nation until Yahweh opens their eyes Romans 11 affirms this, that this principle is sound. Romans 11, 25 through 27. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the, de- de- the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob." For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. And also John 12, 37 through 40. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake: Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. So it shall not be until the return of Christ that the eyes of the natural Jews will be opened. Also, this is a time that I believe... There has to be some catalyst in order to turn them to the Almighty. Some sort of pressure, which is the meaning of tribulation. Something must be the catalyst for them to not rely on their own means, their own weaponry, their own sophistication, and say, we have no one else to turn to but the Almighty. Then I believe salvation will be rendered. And we see this in Zechariah 13.1. So now, as I'm ending I hope that we can see how all this works together. Divine selection predicated upon faith, a remnant of faithful ones of old, children of promise, children of the patriarchs, as it says in Romans 9, 27 through 28. Messiah also crieth, a remnant shall be saved, a remnant according to the election of grace, in conjunction with the calling now from the Gentiles, wherein the Almighty proclaims, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. In like manner, a remnant of faithful Gentiles now may become heirs to the covenants of promise. And even more amazing, a blessing will be extended to the Arab peoples because of their blessing given, or because of the blessing, blessing given to Abraham for Ishmael. That sounds peculiar. But let's read this in Isaiah 19. 21 through 25. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall smite and heal it and they shall return even to the Lord and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them and that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians and that day shall Israel be a third with Egypt and with Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying blessed be Egypt my people and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. And finally, the blessing conferred upon natural Israel herself. And for those alive at Christ's return, the kingdom of Israel, it will be the greatest among nations. They will have favored nation status. Salvation is of the Jews, whether they believed it or not. It came out of the oracles were given to them from language to tradition to divine inspiration directly to a selected people out of all the other peoples of the earth. And they maintain that status and witnessing is not solely contingent upon being an obedient and believing people. You can witness even in a scattering, even being punished, being regathered and even being godless. And so it's important to separate the two. An ungodless, uh, natural Jew such as Ahab did not and will not inherit salvation. Malachi 4, 6-8. These are the final verses. Doesn't fly, but behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the covenant of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. They will be restored for the father's sake, as we can see validated again in Romans 11. reads as such. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance." And so I hope to have established and shown, via uh, the sources that I've utilized, this enormous privilege that will give us a worldview and a mindset that this is not all that life has to offer. That there is a plan and a purpose, not only for this Earth, but for me individually. I'm not bumping along life looking for everything I can get, wondering why certain things happen to me, wondering why I'm suffering wondering why other people are dying, and that's all it is. There is a purpose, there is a reason, and things have a plan, and there is a promise, and how blessed we are to be able to contemplate a conduit, an opportunity to become joint heirs and fellow heirs with this tremendous promise. Thank you.